You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Ken Scholes is the author of Lamentation, Canticle, and Antiphon. Thank you for joining me, Ken. Hey, you're welcome. Glad to be here. Ken, you've created a remarkably complex and entertaining world that is, on one hand, utterly unlike our world, but it's the recombinant DNA of our world runs through this strong, so it's such a pleasure to see it. Talk about that kind of uh, recombination you do. Sure. I, I, you know, some of it's because I have a history degree. And so when I when I sat down to work on the series, I just kind of drew from all of the different cultures and histories that I had learned in college and then tried to mash it all together to come up with what could humanity look like way down the road um, based on all of those cultures and histories being shoved into the same bucket. You know, one of the things I like about your work is the kind of rigorousness that it has, the the the, hint, the science fiction with the feel of fantasy, and that's a really remarkable trick to pull off, although and, and there's a history of that. So I'd like you to talk about the history of the literature and how you combine the history of the literature with the history that you uh, learned. Well, and this is going to be tough because I don't have a good handle on what other people... I mean, I've read in the genre all my life, but I've never... You know, I, I just kind of went with it and didn't wasn't familiar with anybody else who had done it. The closest thing that I'd come is the basic post-apocalyptic um, literature, you know, that I grew up on, like <clears throat> Earth Abides and Farnham's Freehold and um, Canticle for Leibowitz and all of those. But, um, you know, I, I wanted to tell a fantasy. Well, I wanted to tell a science fiction story dressed up as fantasy in such a way where we saw all the familiar tropes, um, but didn't um, but wouldn't necessarily know what I was going to do to them. Talk about creating characters for this world. What, what, I guess the question is, what came first, the world or the characters? Uh, really, the first thing that happened was Rudolfo. Um, and I, I came to the series through a short story that I had written. I wrote it uh, for Lennox Avenue uh, when they were doing a mechanical oddities issue. And I thought, well, I could do a story about a mechanical oddity. What about a metal man found in an impact crater? And... Um, and I'd already been toying with the idea of a, of a dashing prince named Rudolfo who was ruthless and a hedonist and all of these things. And, um, you know, I st- sat down with the short story and moved right into his character and him finding the metal man. And that, um, I mean, that cemented, the, that cemented my relationship with him. The other characters then, of course, when I sat down and turned it into a novel, it became a very... Um, kind of a different animal because I didn't know, you know, I started with one short story that had to do with a very specific part of the novel and added, you know, all these other characters around it. Talk about adapting the tropes of the post-apocalyptic world to the fantasy genre and then going back and forth. Okay. Um, You know, I wasn't familiar with if anybody else had done it. I knew that Jack Vance had done some pretty cool science fantasy stuff that I had not read yet, Um, knew that I needed to at some point. I... um, so I wanted to try a post-apocalyptic story set in a kind of an epic fantasy environment. Um, and I, um, I knew going in, I mean, it was about finding a steam-powered robot that, you know, had been recreated from the ruins of the past. So I knew going in it was science fiction. But I, I wanted my readers to feel like they were in more of an otherworldly biblical epic sort of, of, of approach, kind of a, an epic tale, you know, that involved how they dealt with loss and trauma when they saw the end of their world, so to speak, and then watched as that world continued to change and crumble 
um, at, as they, you know, tried to figure out what was happening to them and why. Um, so, you know, I, I, I feel pretty at home in post-apocalyptia. Um, and, um, you know, I wanted to be able to not, um, I didn't want to have to, I knew I was writing characters who did not understand the world that they that they that they came from. That they knew the world they were in, but that they didn't understand everything in the past. Um, you know, going back, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, potentially millions of years, in human history. That you know that. But I wanted the readers to be able to follow along and say, "Oh, well, that sounds like technology. Well, that sounds like. Why do they think it's magic? Well, because they don't have any other. They don't have any other way to explain it because they don't. They've lost their understanding of that science." Now, uh, one of the things that uh, strikes me about your books is that there's such a, a great underpinning, and you do a great, such a, a nice job at hint, using hints and omens of technology. And I'd like you to talk about how much of that underpinnings um, boils down from the hints. That is, you say, "Oh, here's a good image," and then go, "Well, okay, what is that technology that that backs that image, and what are, what parts migrate the other way?" That's a great question. Um... I don't know that I know. Um, I, I, you know, I, I started with a metal man and then realized that this is a world where they had vast, you know, technology. They'd harnessed the Higgs boson. They'd, they'd done all of these other things. Humanity had, had reached a pinnacle of success and now was in complete decline. Um, and I wanted to be able, um, I wanted to be able to move around in that environment and just see what my characters did. I, I didn't really, um, there wasn't a lot of conscious thought put into it. I just followed the characters and the story that was unfolding for them. As you followed this, do you now have a kind of a, a Bible for this? I don't. Um, I've actually had people ask, you know, do you have a like a master control center where you have all of these, you know, whiteboards and notes? I really don't. I wrote an outline for the second book, but since then, I've you know, I've not written any outlines or synopses. I've just been writing the books, um, and I. Th- I think I've done a good job of holding it all together in my head just by reading the previous books, you know, through the, when you, well, you know this, when you, when you publish a book, you end up reading it like, I don't know, a bunch of times because you got the copy edits, you got the galley proofs, you've got the revision process before that, um, you got the drafting process. So I was fairly familiar with the stories because I've been following them, but I just basically kind of go back to where I left off and look at what I did and then say, okay, well, what happens next? Now, of course, the funnel has reached the narrowest point. I'm getting ready to start the last book of the series, and I have to get it right. I've got to, uh, you know, so actually starting uh, at the uh, beginning of November, I'll go back and read the first four books all in a row, take notes, start building what the fifth book looks like, and then wrap it all up. Are you confident you can wrap it up in one book? Uh, yes. I think it might be a bigger book, but it might also still come in at about the same 145, 100, 145,000 words or so. Do you have plans for visiting or creating another world? I do. I, um, I, I want to tackle a more traditional epic fantasy around colonialization and um, the, you know, just uh, the idea of, of a small group of disenfranchised colonists being sent off in a fantasy world to try and make a new life on a continent they're not, that they're not allowed to be on and see what happens with that. So I have that kind of playing around. I still want to go back to this world. I have a lot. I've created the named lands, and uh, when we, by the time we get to the third book, we know the world's actually called Last Home. And Last Home, you know, I have lots of stories to tell there still. I've, I've created intentionally kind of backstory upon backstory and then more story in the future so that I can go back. But I'm going to take a little break first. Talk about integrating 
material that readers in the present day can read and think, yeah, boy, that reminds me of this that's going on right now, and putting that into the fantasy setting. I, I think that fiction in general and fantasy specifically provides an amazing sandbox for us to play with lots of ideas. And there's certainly a huge um, 9-11 influence in, in the work that I'm doing. When Alan Douglas did the art for the first short story when it came out in Realms of Fantasy, um, when I saw the image of Isaac weeping in the impact crater, it was reminiscent of some of the pictures I had seen coming out of uh, the World Trade Center and everything that happened in New York on, on September 11th. And that's what really resonated with me when I realized, you know, there's a much bigger story here. And as I began to write the novel, I began to see that a lot of the, that became a sandbox where I could play with a lot of ideas, particularly ideas around uh, how, how people can use religion as a tool or a weapon in order to accomplish things. The Androfrancines are a secular order. They don't believe in mysticism, but they have, um, they have made the light of human knowledge sacred. And so and created a religious tapas or kind of religious hierarchy that they enforce in the named lands or did enforce until the first page of the first book when they're taken out. You know, where they basically were shepherds of, of humanity, the survivors of humanity, and they doled out what bits of technology or magic they determined to be um, reasonable. And so that, I, thought that, I think that created a place where I can play with a lot of ideas. I even, I toy a little bit in the second book with a, a movement for democracy in the named lands down on the Interlusion Delta and little bits of, of people that want to go back to the, you know, what the settlers originally intended, um, which of course is playing with, you know, some of the things that are going on in our world today. Um, so I, I do like that. And I also think that when we take it and dress it up in fantasy, people kind of shut off the part of their brain that gets all defensive and uptight and they can just sit in it and and experience uh, experience it from a different perspective than they would have if they went in reading a non-fiction book about those sorts of topics do you take specific events from history your specialty and say this is something i know this is a battle i know i'm going to rewrite this into my books or do you just kind of let it all rain down and coalesce more the the latter. It's more of a raining down and coalescing. I, I just kind of saturated myself in it. I also saturated myself before I left the left religion in general. I was a clergy person. I, I was a Baptist minister for several years, and so the nuances of the language of of scripture, both you know our, you know the the scripture I was involved with and then the other scriptures of the world, it has a rhythm and a cadence to it. And and when we dress history up in myth, it has a different tone. And so I wanted to do, wanted to bring my, my background as a history major in along with my background as a minister to try and create that sort of tone, that sort of feel where it feels like a real place, where it sounds like the cadence of what history and mythology would sound like. I, but at the same time, to, tr to try, I hope, to tell a new kind of story. That's one of the things that's interesting, too, about your work is that in this kind of mythic and fantasy setting, the stories you're telling are the kind of stories that, you know, we are living. And I think that uh, seeing that kind of through line of story is really interesting. Thank you. I, I, that's, I mean, that's my hope is that I will take my life and my experiences and distill them down into fiction that people want to read and at the same time have that fiction feel real enough that people can suspend their disbelief, move through the story, get caught up in the story and in the characters, and yet at the same time have it still feel real despite the fact that there are robots and sword fights and all these other things going on. I've been speaking with Ken Scholes. He's the author of the Psalms of Isaac series. Thank you for joining me, Ken. Thank you very much. It's good to meet you.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.